That was Every Avenue there with Tell Me I'm a Wreck. It's just after 10 o'clock. We're going to start the movie hour in case you missed the news and weather. The news is Egypt, the weather is windy. <laughs> and joining me in the studio is Daniel Mumby. Good morning. Yes, this is the penultimate movie hour. Well, in its present incarnation, we should say. Yes, yes, it's going to be continued. Uh, basically, next week is my last show, then stepping into the breach after that is Richard Dale, and Richard and Daniel are going to put their heads together and keep the movie thing going. It will be quite the same. It'll be about the same sort of time of 10 o'clock. Yeah, it'll like be the same sort of time. Um, obviously, we're not, I mean, we're not just seeking to replace you, Paul. No one could ever do that, but... Uh, <sighs> Yes. The sentimentality will come in full flow next week as an antidote to deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If more you're, on that later. I'll say the streets of Annette will be lined with mourners next Saturday morning as I walked into the radio studio. At least that's until I wake in up. Your, in your mind, <laughs> yes. In your black swan-like hallucination about your yes. passing out. But before we sh uh, start the top ten, we have a couple of uh, rules to run yes. through. Yes. Um, if you're heading ahead in the cinema uh, this weekend or in the future, there are some rules. We can't claim credit for them. It's uh, basically the, the people who stole our idea uh, on Radio 5, <laughs> a certain little movie show, I, I forget what it's called. Anyway, yeah, it's they no, put together a list. Fridays, 2 to 4. <laughs> they put together like, the Ten Commandments of, um, of movie going, and they are as follows. I will do, we'll do an alternative orders. The first one is no eating anything. I think what's, what's, you can allow to eat, but nothing which, no like crunchy crisps, no um, like... Well, there's, there's this thing, Walkers, other crisps are available, we're marketing extra crunchy crisps, which, which just is seems, just taking the mix. Which seems bonkers. So, if you go in there, don't make a noise. Croissant was, was deemed to be the best thing to eat in the cinema, because it doesn't make any noise, or suck your crisps. Yeah, popcorn's fine, but don't kind of do the thing of jumbling it around with your fingers. Yes. Um, no slurping of drinks. If you're going to have Coke, you know, make sure you either have it without ice, or if it... No, just once you've had it all, don't feel the need to just bash the thing with the straw because it's really annoying. True. Uh, on the similar theme, no rustling of uh, sweets or rummaging through handbags or anything like that. So if you've got a big bag, you see people going with a big bag of Doritos or anything like that, don't, don't make that noise. It, nah. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, no irresponsible parenting. If you're taking your kids to see a 12A film, it's a 12. 12A means, you know, anyone, if you think they're fine to see it, you know, with parental permission, it doesn't mean we've got... We need to get rid of our five-year-old. Let's take him to see The Dark Knight because he won't—he or she won't enjoy it—and you're just you no know, using the cinema as a babysitting service. I would like to make a personal attack on the person years ago who took their little three-year-old kid to go and see King Arthur on Saturday morning. Place was full, and he just stood on the seat, back face. You know, an airplane when kids are on airplanes, they face you. Yes. He looked at me all through King Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, the film wasn't that good, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe he's just scared of Clive Owen's big head. So anyway, anyway, the second one, uh, not second one, the fifth one is no hobbies, and that includes if you don't, you don't feel the text and do you uh, update your Facebook and anything like that. No hobbies at all, and also that includes people knitting. Which is, we had an experience with knitting at the Tyneside Cinema, didn't we, on Tuesday Yeah, night? We, we went to see the King's Speech together, and we went when we went to get popcorn, it was the uh, the weekly knitting club in yeah. the uh, the cafe section, which was quite surreal. Yes, but don't take your knitting needles. because the guy from the Hairy Bikers <laughs> passed you. Yes, he did. I don't know which one it is, but the, it's the more Geordie of the two, um, <laughs> the one without the glasses. Do you know who I ran into yesterday at Newcastle Airport? Um, I'm hoping you're going to say some famous football who's going to sign for us to replace our str uh, outgoing striker. I think he would if he could, but no, Duncan Bannatyne. Ah, right. But he was incredibly dishevelled and wearing a leather jacket, like, you know, he was trying to be disguised, but having the opposite effect. I think, yeah, <laughs> what, looking like a, a drunken Fonz? Mmm, perhaps. <laughs> no, song quiff, but, you know. Anyway, we need to uh, rattle through these. Uh, no talking, quite obvious, but no, it's a cinema, you're here to watch a film, not to, you know, provide a commentary. If you want that, go and buy the DVD and listen to something like that. I'd <laughs> expand that out to trailers as well. Don't, you can talk to in the adverts, adverts, no one cares about adverts, that's for getting Yes, adverts are a necessary evil. But, 
not during trailers, because trailers is one of the best bits about the cinema, I feel. Mm -hmm. It's good to see you go, that film looks so rubbish, that film looks good. That's what that's what it's there for. Uh, next one is no mobile phone usage at all. So don't be Twittering, don't be tweeting, don't be putting Facebook updates, don't be texting your mates, or don't even like quickly check, just turn the light on, because the light itself is just so distracting. Uh, if we see you doing it, I think we will chop your arms off. Harsh, but fair. Yes. Um, no kicking of seats. Um, this is particularly. I mean, sometimes you'll go to a multiplex where there aren't, where there, you know, in the kind of the small, the cheap seats where there is no leg room. But that's not an excuse to kind of stretch your legs over the seat in front of you, even if it's empty. True. Uh, yeah. You can either do one, one, two things. You can pay for the Odin Extreme seats, which basically means you get a headrest and a slight another centimetre of foot room. Or you've got the tiny side, where basically I'm six foot one, had my feet completely stretched out and didn't even touch the seat in front. Yeah, I'm six foot three and the same is true with me. Get yourselves to the tiny side. Other cinemas are available, but, but not, not quite as good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no arriving late. This is um, pretty obvious as well. You can, I think we'll, should we let people, because of this situation, you're allowed to arrive during the advert, but not the trailers. Yeah, okay, I think that's fair. But definitely not once that thing's come on the screen saying, this is a 12A thing, and that bloke signed the screen. Not allowed any time after that. Simple. Yes. I don't know and uh, finally, <laughs> no shoe removal. It's no much more of sort of a delicate thing here, but um, basically we don't want your smelly foot odour taking our minds off the film. True. Simple as that. It's just, it's just about hygiene, people. Let's keep it, let's keep it safe. Let's keep it clean. Lionheart Radio. Well, now that we've got through that, um, kind of slightly snobbish pedantry. Should we do the top ten? Yep, if you feel that you can abide by those top ten rules, uh, we will allow you to go to the cinema. And if you want to go to the cinema, here are the top ten which are out at the minute. And number ten, we've got How Do You Know? Well, it underperformed in America and it's underperforming here, and the reason is it isn't any good at all. After, um, I know that it was advertised uh, when my laptop was still working, it was advertised a lot on the IMDb. Yes. Uh, but not so much on telly and stuff like that, so it's a strange one. This, the, it's the a bus shelter They must have thought... All around Newcastle. Is it? Right, so they must have thought... Well, it's, just better. It's, it's strange because it's got, it's got star power in, yes. in it, but just no jokes, no script. <laughs> no, I mean, like I said, like I said when we reviewed it last week, Jack Nicholson needs to start... If he's only going to do a film every three years, he needs to start choosing his roles a little bit better because he hasn't made a good film since about Schmidt, which was nearly nine years ago. God, <laughs> that, that is a long time. I thought it was just 2005, 2006. 2002. Balls. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Dan Daniel is ageing us all very much this Sorry, guys, so but someone has to do it. At number nine, we've got 127 hours. It's amazing that it's still there, frankly. I mean, because it, it came out um, beginning of January and we all thought it was going to be this sort of uh, quirky, widgety film of Danny Boyle's that he would basically got the chance to make because of the big box office success of Slumdog Millionaire. And it has performed remarkably well. I mean, I think that... James Franco is the only serious rival that Colin Firth has at the Oscars in the Best Actor category, and he's what holds the film together. And incidentally, if you're a Danny Boyle fan and you live anywhere near the Tyneside, they are doing a special screen of his new production of Frankenstein from the National, which is being live-streamed on, I think it's March the 17th, and there's still quite a few tickets left for that. Um, I think it's Johnny Lehmann and Benedict Cumberbatch alternating in the roles of Frankenstein and the Monster. But yeah, if 127 hours is very good. Yes, uh, I say we are still a bit dubious about James Franco winning an Oscar. It seems like he hasn't paid enough dues <laughs> to, to, to earn back that respect, but fair and fair play to him. Uh, number eight, we've got the rather excellent, Daniel's words not mine, Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> Thanks for landing me in there. <laughs> well, it's on the way out. I mean, my biggest hope about Gulliver's Travels is that it's made Jack Black rich enough to go off and do something more interesting, although if he is listening... Do something, doing something more interesting does not mean going back and working with Noah Baumbach again because you were terrible in Margot at the wedding and, you know, that 
self-important little twit doesn't need any more attention. I mean, we've got his new film coming out later this year called The Emperor's Children, which is, surprise, surprise, about a bunch of rich intellectual people moaning for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's Jack Black. I think with him, Nicholas Cage, Robert De Niro, we're going to take you to a career clinic. One weekend, <laughs> like a bit of a boot camp, but we're just going to say, this script good, this script bad, and the bad scripts we will give to Jason Statham, <laughs> who we will get to later. Uh, number seven, we've got Hereafter, the new Clint Eastwood. Which is flawed and heavily contrived. I mean, it's not the natural subject matter for either Clint Eastwood as its director or Peter Morgan, its screenwriter. I mean, I, it's very difficult to put heaven or the afterlife on screen in a way which isn't kind of cloying and sentimental. I mean, you look at things like Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones, which is a kind of admirable failure, or Vincent Ward's What Dreams May Come, which is the one in which Robin Williams goes to heaven. <laughs> and it's very, I mean, those are, those are films which both do heaven as a kind of digital CGI landscape, you know, with varying degrees of success, and it does, and the, both of them feel incredibly manipulative at times. I mean, I think that it's worth seeing for the performances. We're both fans of Matt Damon, and I think he does a very convincing job. Obviously, he's in True Grit, which is coming out in uh, the next few weeks. Um, like I say, it's probably an incidental work. It's not as good as Invictus, which was Eastwood's previous film, but, you know, if you've got nothing else to do, it's probably fine. Definitely. And uh, number six, we have The Green Hornet. Are the first to you on this one. Yes, this is basically Seth Rogen in another slacker comedy. Basically, his dad is a rich uh, newspaper editor. Uh, he passes away early on, so Seth Rogen has to take up the mantle, decides to make the news himself by fighting crime with his uh, sidekick, um, whose name escapes me. Um, Cato. Cato, that's the but one. But not the Cato in the Pink Panther films. They haven't wheeled out Burt Quark after all these years. <laughs> it's the same sort of stereotypical sort of character portrayal, though. <laughs> it's, yeah, so we'll leave it on side. So it's it's remarkably better than you would have thought. And then, <laughs> the best sense, if, if I if I put a quote in the post, it would be like, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which isn't a glowing reference, but it, it was it was two hours. It's fought long. You should have knocked that film out in 90 minutes. Uh, there's some good um, good jokes in there and lots of a lot of action, but maybe it's a bit too much action towards the end. You kind of just think, just end. And Cameron Diaz just just stop. Yeah, when we breathing. when we uh, <laughs> mentioned the Cato stuff, I got a horrible image of you know the relaunched Pink Panthers with Steve Martin, and apparently they're not going to make a third one. Hooray! Oh, I was but, wanting. To, I was waiting to get the box set. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I've ruined your evening. Um, that if you know in 20 years' time they decide to bring it back. Pray to God that we don't have Seth Rogen doing a French accent. But we, we, I can imagine a world where that will exist, though, unfortunately. Let's move on before we all kill ourselves. <laughs> yes, and number five, we have The Dilemma. Which is rubbish. I mean, Ron Speaking of killing ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit harsh. Um, Ron Howard hasn't made a good film since Cinderella Man. There's now talk that he's going to be helming the adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower series, which has you know, got a huge amount of discussion on the net. I mean, I just hope that Vince Vaughn doesn't turn up in that, because he, he's no good in this. Dark Tower, that... That's got to be more than one film. Is it going to be like a mini TV miniseries? Because it's an absolute monster fucking series. I think they're going to make one, and then, but I don't know how much of the book they're going to compress into. It's still in pre-production, so we, we, uh, there's no real way of telling. Bit but, of a uh, golden compass, like see if, see if you well, like it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it could easily work out as that. I mean, bear in mind, the Narnia series changed hands a couple of times because they made the first two films, and then um, Walden Media, I think it was, kind of got cold feet, and it was, you know, in development hell for a couple of years and it was only when Disney picked it up that they made the third one. So I think we'll have to wait and see but in the case of The Dilemma the best thing in it is Winona Ryder basically doing the same performance as she does in Black Swan which is the slightly hysterical shriekingly mad person who can never know. It's the sort of thing that Francesca Annes was doing in the 70s but uh, she doesn't uh, she's very underused. True. Uh, number four if you're if you're 
looking ahead, the Oscars are coming up shortly, and this film has got awards written all over it. It is a mechanic starring Jason Statham. <laughs> <laughs> it's a workmanlike but ultimately unremarkable Jason Statham film. I mean, the original, which was made in the, in the early 70s with Charles Bronson, is kind of held up as some sort of existential parable, but that all falls down when you discover that it's directed by Michael Winner, who couldn't direct a thing in his life if he tried. Um, I mean, the remake plays much more to the sort of the crank crowd and the transporter crowd, and while it's not up with either of those, I mean, it's perfectly fine for, fine for what it is, but not much else. True. Um, it, yes, if you, I say, Don Southern should be doing better as well, but I suppose he, but I kind of got the impression from hearing an interview that he just really doesn't care. <laughs> he no. just, just do out these days, because he's doing about 200 films, I believe. Something like that. And I suppose you're going to get a lot of turkeys in amongst that. Has he ever made a film with Kiefer? Uh, he's got to have done, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Even if, you know, he turns up for one second, there's no person he kills in Lost Boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got it. We will, we will Google that later on. But yes. uh, we'll find that out. And number three, we have the Black Swans. Over to you. Which is totally bonkers. It's like a mashup of the Red Shoes, Black Narcissus, Marl and Drive, David Cronenberg's The Fly, all kind of held together with a very interesting take on Dario Argento's Suspiria. It's all thrown at the screen in a completely head-on, borderline psychotic way. Great performances by Natalie Portman and you know, Winona Ryder. And how often do you hear those things said from me? considering the problems I've had with Portman in the past. It isn't flawless. I mean, there are things in it which are kind of rather too lurid, like the scene where she, where it's Natalie Portman's on the subway train and the old man starts making suggestive gestures towards her, which I found rather uncomfortable. But it is a complete knockout of an experience. True. And number two, we have... King's Speech. If you've seen that, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll defer to you on this one. Yes, King's Speech is uh, we Colin, together. Colin Firth, a uh, portrayal of King George the Sixth. Yes. King George VI, uh, who is forced into becoming the king because Guy Pierce wants to bit of American toddy. Um, I'm, I'm sort of... You're paraphrasing <laughs> yeah. through history, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's only history. So it's the graduate in the corner. <laughs> it's our history, we can do what we want with it. Uh, yeah, and it's it's just a, a remarkable a film about how he overcomes his fear. Well, not so much overcomes, but how he, how he works around his, his, his fear of speaking in public, and it takes him from the beginning where he's talking at Wembley Stadium, and it just, it is... Oh, it's it's painful to watch, but it's kind of rewarding because by the end of it, uh, when he's making the speech at the start of the Second World War, you kind of you get the, you, you realise how far he has come. Uh, Jeffrey Rush is brilliant in it. He is. Helena Bonham Carter is very much the the hello, I'm the Queen. Blah blah blah. That's very much a, a typical yes. posh bird. Yes, ma'am is in ham, not ma'am is in harm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's full of it's. It's it's a lot funnier than I was expecting. Uh, not to say it's like Seth Rogen type just jokes all the way through. It's just just got a good wit about it because it's a very um, hard sort of um, subject matter, but they, they do it rather well. And, yeah. and the Queen has come up this week and said that she likes it. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's no. I suppose that's any and recommendation it. that it needs. <laughs> Well, in a manner of speaking, of course, the um, one of the things that we spotted is the uh, the young actress playing um, the young Princess Margaret is one of is the girl out of Outnumbered, which True. we spotted. So, if you're a fan of that, and the kids are a bit like Tom Cruise in that they never age. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a bit about that because actually they're only on screen for well, what in the film is two years, so I suppose they could get away with that. But if yeah. they had them on all the way through, it would be like, oh, it's like that bit in A Beautiful Mind where you realise he's hallucinating. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoyed the King's Speech, so I don't think it's the best film I've seen uh, all year. I think that towards the end it does get a little bit saccharine in the, the way that they kind of cut between him and him making the speech and listening around the world but the 
two things I'd like to make. First of all, I maintain the most surprising thing in it is Guy Pearce as Edward VIII. Considering that when you meet Guy Pearce, he's got a very thick Australian accent, you would never expect him to be able to do plummy Englishman. And yet, to see him and Colin Firth and that wine cellar talking about kinging is a really just good yeah, thing. It's very confess what you're doing. I'm kinging. Yes. <laughs> um, but the other thing is, I think, I mean, obviously we can't talk about it in too much detail because it's only quarter past ten in the morning, but the funniest scene in it is the swearing. Yes, stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. Yes, which is the only way we can put it without in, now having a bleep button in the studio and me just kind of trying to time myself. We might do it next week on my last show. Maybe it's not. No, you don't want to get me chucked off as yeah. well. Ofcom still listening. Hello, Ofcom. <laughs> yeah, I had to ring up and ask for permission. At number one, we have Tangled. Which is a perfectly passable sort of post-Shrek sub-enchanted animation. I mean, it's nothing to write home about. I mean, it does look like it's been test-screened within an inch of its life because it changed its name three or four times in the middle of its production. And it is incredibly expensive for an animated film. But I like the supporting performances and it is nice to see a mainstream family film with a decent female role model at the heart of it. Played by Mandy Moore, who we played earlier. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of our music as well. Because she started off as a very much a British Spears clone and then kind of ditched that when she changed record companies and did like more folky sort of music. So she's a bit of a triple threat. Good actress, good singer. Good, good on the eyes. Yeah, like I say, it's <laughs> I don't know if that's what the third one's meant to be, but that's the third one in Paul's book. That was the first thing that came <laughs> into your mind. Like I say, Tangled, it's perfectly fine. It's not going to last in the way that Beauty and the Beast did, but it's perfectly fine. True. Beauty and the Beast, I think that's just been re-released on DVD. Right. Because before time, Disney used to take DVDs out of circulation, hence you would have to spend a fortune on eBay to get the, get the titles, but they're, they're sort of releasing them from the vault as such, like Fantasia and things like that. So, What's your favourite Disney film? Beauty and the Beast. Oh. Good you, choice. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you've seen that. Do you know much about it? I know it was nominated for the best uh, film Oscar. It was the first animated one to be nominated. Does it use CGI towards the end? You know um, the ballroom scene at the end where it's spinning around? That just looked a bit... I think it's all hand-drawn. Well, if it to is. To be honest. Yeah. Well done, whoever had the pencils out that day. <laughs> yeah, because Pixar wasn't involved at that point, so there wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have the rendering technology available. So I think, I think it is all hand-drawn. Now, my favourite Disney film is The Lion King. Right. And that's equally impressive. You know, you have the final fight between um, Simba and Scar, where it's all the flames leaping through, and I mm -hmm. think that was really scary. But uh, have you seen the original Jean Cocteau, Beauty and the Beast, La Belle La Bette? Uh, no. Very strange film. The only two I remember seeing is... Um, well, I know Channel 4 have a horrendous series they're about to start, which they take beauties with basically thick glamour models and meet them with, pair them with people who've got horrible facial disfigures and they go, Beauty and the Beast. And it's like, seriously, Channel 4? So watch out for that if you're a fan of things like my big fat gypsy wedding. It's the same sort of exploitative television. But aside from that, the other, I remember the film version and then there was a TV series with Ron Perlman. I haven't seen it. Ron Perlman as the... Playing sub the beast. As, as a subway riding beast, yeah, set in New York. <laughs> And it was, was he in kind of Hellboy gear with the horns? No, he just had he had like really like a bit of like a Bon Jovi type haircut about oh, him. No. And it was it was a strange thing. It was I, mem I remember it was like part of the, the Saturday this night. This is the Fresh Sound for, while, for the but, District. This is Lionheart Radio. Search for Ron Perlman as Beast. Right, so that's your UK yeah, top we, we've waffled a lot. And if you, I say, if you respect the, the ten rules we gave up before, we will allow you to go to the cinema. And if you, if you, if you feel you're going to break them, then you have to stop in the house and watch a DVD. So in which case, we have a cult film for you. And it's a really big one if you're a North East resident this week because we're doing Get Carter. Um, oh, hang on, I'm not doing Get Shorty. No. I've prepared a John Travolta tribute and everything. 
<sighs> Sorry to disappoint. Well, Sorry, listeners, I'll take this white suit off. Excuse <laughs> <laughs> me, strutting into the studio this morning, all for nothing. Well, we could change yeah. it very quickly and do the Ealing comedy, The Man in the White Suit. Have you seen that? No. No, Alec Guinness invents a suit that um, it's irresistible to dirt, and then he gets hunted down by all the uh, the these soap companies <laughs> who are going to go out of business. It's a very interesting black comedy. Anyway, Get Carter, which is the debut film by Mike Hodges, whom we talked about a few uh, months ago when we did Flash Gordon, and uh, the very start of the run on this program, based on the pulp novel Jack's Return Home by Ted Lewis, which was itself inspired by the one-armed bandit murder in Newcastle in the mid-60s. Did you know anything about the, this uh no, it's event. I'm thinking it's, uh, it sounds a bit like the fugitive. <laughs> <laughs> How Indiana Jones hunts the one-armed man. <laughs> well, no, one-armed band, not one-armed bandit as in a one-armed villain, but one-armed bandit as in a fruit machine. I mean, I didn't know very much about this, but no, just a bit of background. There was a guy called Angus Sibbett, who was a money collector for a company that supplied fruit machines to working men's clubs across the Northeast, which was run by these guys called uh, Michael Luvalio and Dennis Stafford. So what would happen is, you know, they'd supply the working men's clubs with fruit machines. They'd come around like once a month to collect the money, you know, the stuff that hadn't been won, and all those funds would kind of be laundered through the money to go to organised crime. And on the morning of the 4th of January 1967, Sibbard's body was found dead in the back of an abandoned Jaguar in County Durham just hours after he'd met with the other two. They were given life sentences. It became one of the biggest trials in the North East, um, seen as a kind of real inclination of the rise of underground gangs in Newcastle and at the time, you know, when the Crays and the Richardsons were battling out for control of the, uh, the East End of London. And Luvalio, one of the guys who was given a life sentence, always maintained that the murder was by an associate of the Crater in twins rather than by him himself but no so that inspired the ted lewis novel from which we now have get carter so the plot summary is michael kane uh, plays jack carter who is a ruthless london gangster who travels up to newcastle or is it gateshead no they can't quite make up their mind and in the end they only credit one which kind of um, pisses a lot of people off so he's up in uh, the northeast for the funeral of his brother frank whom he believes has been actually murdered rather than no he's died under suspicious circumstances he takes lodging in a boarding house he begins to question all the people who knew frank including the local crime lord Cyril Kinnear played by playwright John Osborne who wrote Look Back in Anger right. which kind of hangs over all of this and uh, Cliff Brumby who's played by Brian Mosley and Brumby's a kind of entrepreneur who's looking to build a restaurant on a car park um, which is the famous car park featured in the film which was recently demolished. Yeah it was I don't think I'm going to be too conversant it was an eyesore it was, it was of its time in the 70s it was, it was fairly okay but it just had to go I know that people complained and said you need to keep it but it was it was only in one film, you know. It, it's it's hard it's hard to drum up enough rare reason to keep it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I will I agree. It's, th those scenes are not the most exciting in the film. If someone but... built a Death Star in the middle of St James's Park, eventually you'd have to get rid of it, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> With Mike Ashley and Darth Vader. Uh, anyway, so as a result of doing these investigations, more and more people turn up asking Jack to basically leave, some of them politely, some of them slightly less politely, and slowly but surely the truth comes out involving, um, the, which you know, turns out his niece, Doreen, might be involved, and it all gets very murky, very dark, very strange. Here's the thing, there are so many films which we now revere, which when they were first released were completely misunderstood. I mean, Blade Runner, which, like I've said on a number of occasions, is my favourite film, it underperformed commercially and big critics like Roger Ebert said it was visually interesting but narratively lacking, which now seems an incredibly stupid thing to say because Blade Runner's got one of the most substantial screenplays ever written. Likewise, Shawshank Redemption was snubbed at the Oscars and it barely broke even. You know, that famously got its second life on DVD and television. You know, it's always on film four. More famously, of course, Citizen Kane was denounced by the public and William Randolph Hearst, the guy whom it was allegedly based upon almost 
tried to get every copy of it burned, and that year it, it lost out the Best Picture Oscar to a film called How Green Was My Valley, which now no one remembers, which is about a pastor in a Welsh mining community who gets trapped in rubble. <laughs> um, it's just not very interesting. So Get Carter is one of those films that has undergone a very slow but steady rehabilitation over the last 40 years. I mean, even if you read some of the re reviews that came out when it was first released, even the glowing ones like the American critic Pauline Kael basically commented on, yes, it, it's interesting, but it's completely morally empty. And it's taken a long time to kind of build up and reevaluate this. I mean, obviously the remake with Sylvester Stallone had something to do with it, and you know, the, the novel was reprinted and people have been kind of going yeah. back to it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later if we have time or can be bothered. <laughs> but it is now regarded as one of, not just one of the greatest crime films ever made, but one of the greatest British films ever made. In fact, I think when Film 4 did a poll a few years ago, it actually came as number one. So, Can't get no, hard act to follow. There is this thing in um, early 70s cinema, which I call... Hang the. So it beats Sex Lives of the Potato Men. By some distance. <sighs> there is no, there is no dis God. Two <laughs> disappointments ah. in ten minutes. You, you're not having a good morning. There, here's the thing. There, are, there is this kind of loose grouping of films which came out in kind of the late 60s, early 70s, which... I, which, which there's the main four known as the Unholy Quadrilogy of films, which is Get Cars of the French Connection, The Clockwork Orange, and Straw Dogs, which are basically credited as being the four films, you know, two from America, two from Britain, which took the kind of... the rose-tinted spectacles of the 1960s, basically blew them apart and said, actually... Society is horrible, life is bankrupt, now let's look at the dark underbelly and show you what life's really like, rather than just making films about young people, you know, tripping on acid and going off and having sex in a desert or something, which is, you know, is a risky point. The groundwork for this sort of thing has been laid by Midnight Cowboy, but Gare Carter is a really interesting meeting point of the other three because you have the violent sexuality of A Clockwork Orange, you have the vigilante edge of Straw Dogs, which of course launched Dustin Hoffman's, well, not launched his career, but kind of furthered it after Midnight Cowboy, and the kind of crime thriller aspect of The French Connection, and it is on the one hand just a very rough and ready exploitation film, but it somehow manages to rise above those kind of pulpy, trashy roots to mm -hmm. become a really interesting piece of social commentary about, you know, British society and crime and so forth. It, the fault of the film first, I mean, it does start rather slowly. I don't know if you felt this, but the first ten minutes, it does take a while to sort of get into gear. Yeah, I mean, I was, this might kind of jump ahead to a point I was going to make towards the end, would be whether it's... It's still ultimately everything in it is ultimately watchable due to Michael Caine. He's a bit. I don't know whether would you say would it be controversial to say his best performance? Yeah, I think it is his best performance because right. he didn't win. He won his Oscars later in his career and stuff like that. Uh, he has made some absolute tripe like George Three and stuff like that. Yeah, George so, Four. George yeah. Four. Sorry, um, but yeah, it's just you kind of just the the glue that holds it together, just like a magnetic screen presence. You just think. You can, I, could, I could forgive that, the slow opening and stuff like that, because you just say, he's just, I don't know, something about him. There, yeah, I mean, to, to jump ahead, I do think it is, is his finest performance, because Michael Caine, up until that point, had been, the roles that he had been cast in were the sort of light-hearted, lovable, rogue, Jack the Lad, happy-go-lucky stuff. I mean, you know, Zulu, The Ipcris File, Billion Dollar Brain, which is a Ken Russell film, mm. which, you know, it's the communist war of attrition, and Michael Caine has to, uh, you know, get some, has to basically save some eggs, which are carrying a rare biological disease, and it's got the strange performance of a guy just shouting, STRONG! <laughs> over <and over> again. <laughs> so that sort of thing, and obviously, more famously, Alfie in the Italian job. So, you know, even 
in the case of Alfie, where you had a slight darkness to the role, there was a sort of, well, it's playful and it's likable. Whereas with Carter, it's, you know, say one word wrong and you'll get your face smashed in with a shotgun. <laughs> and it was a complete change. I mean, there, there is the iconic image of the film, which is, you know, Michael Caine in that black trench coat with a whiskey bottle in one hand and a double-barreled shotgun in the other, which is one of the coolest images in 70s cinema. True. And he just has this kind of way of holding himself because he's a very understated actor and you know, understated sometimes means he's wooden sometimes it means that he's you know just a bit you know off kilter yeah. frankly and for a lot of the film he does spend it kind of speaking through gritted teeth that sort of thing <laughs> but it is a really full-on emotional performance and he doesn't fly off the handle unnecessarily and he just has presence he has that real sense of presence it's not just the clothes he wears or the way it walks but it's the way he carries himself as mm -hmm. the character um so, like I said, the opening is a little bit slow because, you no, know, the opening is just kind of him travelling up to Newcastle, like the opening credits are where he's on the train. You have the kind of very jazzy Roy Budd soundtrack with the double bass, you know, doom, 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 that sort of thing. And that, in many ways, is kind of the weakest part of the film because it's unnecessary. I mean, we kind of know that he's from London because it's Michael Caine, who can't do a Geordie accent, and I'm glad that he couldn't try. Um, I mean, the... The interesting thing about it is that you notice the Roy Budd soundtrack in the opening, you think, okay, it's going to be a sort of, you know, slightly melodramatic rom, but actually there's hardly any music in it. You know, most of the sounds are like, you know, breaking glass or shotguns going off or cars screeching around corners, which kind of hints at one of the things about the film which is really, really interesting. It is an absolutely brilliant depiction of urban malaise of that kind of sense of standardized institutionalized despair and awkward silence in communities there's a great shot which i think i mentioned last week when uh, they're going in the funeral cortege to bury uh, michael Caine's brother mm -hmm. and there's a long shot of the backs of terraced houses with a cobbled street running down uh, between them and the cobbled street is fading off into the smoky distance with factories in the background and it's like you're watching the kind of industrial dream of Britain dying a very slow and painful death, and these communities are being undercut by evil forces which you can't quantify and which it's impossible to control. And it's, you know, it's about the infiltration of criminal elements into what was once considered a very stable and, you know, solid family society. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes um, what Hodges does very well is what a lot of filmmakers do, which is he makes the landscape of the film every bit as much a character in itself. I mean, obviously the famous sequence on the beach at the end, which we'll come on to, but also there are lots of shots where it's just the bridges of Newcastle and Gates and all, or just the scrapyards on the edge of the Tyne and all that you can hear except for in the background as a machinery itself is just hollow breeze, mm -hmm. which is really nerve-shredding because you think, well, what's going to come out and get him? Because it's just Michael Caine on screen and he's all on his own in a wide shot. No, is there something out there? Are we being watched? Are we seeing this from a point of view of a gunman or what's going on? Yeah, it's equivalent in horror movies where you have that one violin playing that suspenseful note in the background and you're like, there's something going to jump out. It's probably going to be a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you have that sort of thing. Um, there is all... There has been some complaint about the film, certainly at the time, about its sexual content, and I know you wanted to pick up upon this. Yeah, well, it's just as one scene, um, it's probably if, it's, if, if, if we're going to be a bit spoiling the plot and stuff, but it was 1970, so it's hard, we can't, can't assume everyone's seen it, but there's a bit of scene where he gives um, what a prostitute called Margaret uh, an overdose of heroin and kills her, and it's kind of, it's just like, it's, it's obviously, it goes not the seedy underground sort of world, but I just thought, Certain films have it where a character kills people like that and does stuff like that. Can you find it hard to root for him and stuff like that? I don't know how you felt. Did you think, oh, 
well, he's everyone's evil in this film, so I don't know where my allegiances lie. I think saying everyone's evil is actually hints at what the the kind of main uh, idea of the film is. I mean, there is a comparison to kind of jump ahead a bit from what I was going to talk about, but that's fine. Have you seen uh, a Michael Winner film called Death Wish, which also had Charles Bronson in? No. Uh, it's about a man who... Um, He's an ordinary law-abiding citizen, but he comes home one day to find that his wife and daughter have been raped and killed, and he basically goes on a one-man uh, killing spree to avenge their deaths, but it's implied that he's... N and the thing about that film, which has always been problematic for me, is that it's a film which very much glorifies the idea of the vigilante and revels in the violence on screen. I mean, there is no sort of... There's a little bit of five or ten minutes of build-up, and then the rest of the film is just Charles Bronson hiding around, but no uh, bridges with a shotgun. No, not, not a shotgun, sorry, a handgun, and just yeah. blasting out anyone he sees. Yeah, they made a few sequels that, didn't they? Yes, they did. I mean, so, it was yeah. the thing that kept Charles Bronson's career going. But the point about those films is that it, it's very much you're made to sympathise with the guy who is the psychopathic murderer who is on the edge of madness. Mm. Whereas with Get Carter, although the stuff that Michael Caine's character does is well at best questionable, you no, know, whether it's you know bashing people over the head with shotguns or stabbing people with a knife around the back of a booking uh, a bookie's office or in the, the scene that you mentioned where he's giving a prostitute an overdose of heroin those scenes i mean it's not that the film gets away with them but it's it's sort of you understand that what he's doing is it's it, you're not made to sympathize with him and so it doesn't seem gratuitous the film mm -hmm. isn't saying look at this guy he's doing the right thing by killing these people it's saying this world is one in which there is no morality anymore and it isn't so much a case of do the right thing as protect your family and you know act on impulse because ultimately that's what's Kane doing and he he is by his own nature incredibly ruthless and he does what he thinks not just what he thinks is right but what he thinks needs to happen mm -hmm. and the film i mean it, it's a very complicated moral argument because you're essentially being offered a situation in which it is completely bleak and completely nihilistic but and asked to sympathize with michael Caine. and i think the fact that if if you had a character actor who was any less of a presence, it would be very difficult to hold the film together because it is about the idea, like you said, that everyone's evil. Everyone is either in on the act or wants revenge. And so you have to basically take a step back and say, this world is completely rancid and corrupt and let's see how things play out. And obviously, um, this is kind of this ties together with the ending, but I think we'll come out of that in just a little bit. I mean, the interesting thing about Carter as a character is that he isn't just a meat-headed psychopath in the way that Charles Bronson's character is in Death Wish, or more recently, Gerard Butler in Law Abiding Citizen. Yes. Um, I mean, he... The, the way that the plot unfolds, which is surprisingly twisty, actually, for a film that's, you know, made on so little money and based on such a kind of pulpy, trashy novel, um, it's, you know, you, you have to wait a long time to find out exactly what happened to his brother and how, you know, the niece was involved and, and, and what's Kinnear's involvement. So it isn't a case of, we know who did it from the start and we've got to let him kill him, 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 him and her before we get to the final yeah. confrontation. It's not a sort of... It's more ambitious, which is... It is a much more ambitious film. And, um, there is a central, um scene in it which is the trans which you know is referred to loosely as the porn scene although there it's not porn in the sense that it's depiction of serial well basically what happens is uh, michael kane has just slept with one of kinnear's um kind of you know squeezes this you know, girl who's when well, the first time we meet her she's pretty much off her face on scotch and various other things he's just slept with her she's now having a bath he finds that she's got a projector in her apartment turns it on and there is an amateur erotic film showing and about halfway through, and now having you know, slight, gone slightly titillated by this, he spots his niece in the film, 
and it emerges that actually Kinnear has got her involved against her will and he actually openly weeps. Mm -hmm. When up until this point he's been very straight-faced, very gritted teeth, very kind of nasty and ruthless and going in a complete deadline of who killed my brother. And suddenly it becomes a much more, well not just a moral issue, but a much more personal issue. Yeah. And he's, and he's, there, there is a real kind of, I mean, like I said, the film doesn't make out that what he does after those scenes are right. I mean, it, it does link back to the central idea that if you commit violence, it'll end with destruction, not just to the people you're trying to kill, but also yourself. Which, of course, brings us on to the brilliant final confrontation on the beach, which um, we can't... I mean, if you don't want to know the ending of Get Carter, turn down for two minutes, but it's the best bit of the film, so we can't not talk about it. Yeah, we're going to have to. So, um, to build it up... He, he, let's uh, just say he, won't, he wouldn't have made a sequel. Good way of putting <laughs> it. Um, so the situation is you have Carter hunting down the last of um, the henchmen who was involved in killing his brother, who's played by Ian Hendry, who uh, has, if you're, if you're a kind of thriller fan, he has a brief performance in Roman Polanski's Repulsion with Catherine Deneuve, and that's a very interesting film. So he, Carter has framed you know, Kinnear, you know, he for you know, the crimes, he's you know, broken down this entire ring and now he's just hunting down all the people that had some involvement in both making the film and killing his brother because the whole thing is Doreen was forced into making the erotic film, Frank found out about it, threatened to blackmail Kinnear so Kinnear bumps him off, that's basically it and so you have this long chase along the pier and along the coal-seamed beaches which ends up with Eric, uh, played by Ian Hendry, collapsing just from exhaustion. And Michael Caine stands over him in that trench coat with the, the double-barrel shotgun, makes him drink an entire bottle of scotch, and then, off-screen, bashes his head in with the butt of his shotgun. You know, gruesome way to go. Now, the interesting thing about that scene is that it then carries on with Michael Caine dumping... Um, Eric's body into the sea and he turns to the camera and he's got a slightly kind of gleeful smile on his face as if to say I've done it yeah. I've you know, beaten everyone it's okay everyone's going to be alright Doreen's going to be safe I can go off to South America with Bradecton and make love on the sand and then as he's about to throw the shotgun into the scene he gets killed and he falls flat on his back and the waves start coming up and it's implied that his you know, body's going to be washed out to sea. And it is an absolutely brilliant way to end the story because you've, you've had all this build-up where you think you are heading towards just, okay, am I sympathising with this guy or not? And this is the scene in which it's going to come down one side or the other and, no, actually, if I'm made to sympathise with him, then it means the film is very morally questionable. But the fact that it ends with that means, yes, violence doesn't solve anything and it is a morally duplicitous world in which if you commit violence you will pay the penalty and it is that very cruel twist of fate of just when you think you're safe you get your comeuppance in exactly the same way that you lived your own life which is cruel and cold-hearted and I think that that was the only way you could end the film and it's just a fantastic final scene with again no score so as the final credits play out it's just silence and you're left there completely stunned because it's a brilliant way to finish mm -hmm. um, so just to kind of round this off I think it is an, aside from its opening, which like I say, I found a little bit slow, it is a near as damn it perfect thriller. It's not quite up there with Chinatown, but it is every bit as emotionally powerful as their films. It's perfectly pitched, it's got great dialogue, there's social commentary in there. The performances are really good. I mean, John Osborne, whom like I say, wrote Look Back in Anger, he has that kind of very, have you seen um, Blue Velvet, the David Lynch film? No, I've read, 
far too much about it, though. Well, <laughs> I, f- I feel like I've read too much about there it. Is a char- there is a character in there, one of the kind of subsidiary gangsters called uh, Paul, who is nicknamed Paul the Suave, and who basically has this sort of very laid-back way of talking. Bring the beer glasses, darling. And it's that same sort of delivery of what... There's a scene where the uh, where Kane has infiltrated Kinnear's mansion and comes in on playing poker. Mm. And uh, he's and John Oswald's kind of sitting there with a, a, a kind of... Uh, basically like a twig in his mouth, just kind of sucking it like a cigar. And, That's right, Tony. We're going to play now, aren't we? I believe I've won. <laughs> and it's just that... You no, know, you kind of sense there's something much more dark going on the set. There's also um, a very brief performance by Alan Armstrong in his first ever... Uh, I think it's his big screen debut. Of course, he's better known now for stuff like New Tricks and Bleak House, but he, mm-hmm. now, at that point, he was a very well-considered actor. So, to sum up, really fascinating film. Mike Hodge's best work. If you're interested in his work, go and see um, a couple of his films at the Tyneside Cinema in March because they're doing a retrospective screening. You can't, I mean, the 40th anniversary screening of Get Carter is sold out, so you can't see it on the big screen. But go and get it on DVD because it is one of the most important British films of the 70s and it has endless repeat value. Yeah. Can't say further than that. No. And uh, next week's cult film, uh, it had to be. It has, well, because we've kind of talked about it peripherally all the time we've been doing this show, so we will finally get round to doing Deliverance. Yes, we've managed to squeeze in Deliverance references to most films every week. <laughs> whether it's relevant or not, Deliverance gets mentioned, so we're going to end well, my last show. Uh, I don't know whether the cult film will continue, I don't know. Yeah, I think it will. Yeah. I mean... Oh, I've done it again, school. I left my phone on. Uh, <laughs> so that's, I'm not leaving, I'm getting fired. Um, yeah, so deliverance next week. Um, so yeah, if, if <laughs> God knows how we're not going to avoid getting fired after we go on that film. <laughs> we shall have to skirt around things very carefully. We'll just play Jewel and Banjos and then be silent and just let you like, conjure up your own images in your head. <laughs> <laughs> that's the safe way. <laughs> From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Right, that's your cult film. We've had your top ten. We've had your rules for buying this uh, by cinema code. If you're gonna, if none of them films took your fancy and you want to see the new releases, uh, here's them what they are. Well, uh, which one do you want to start with? I think we start with Brighton Rock. Okay, um, Brighton Rock directorial debut of Rowan Joffe, who is the son of Roland Joffe, who made uh, the Killing Fields and the Mission. Very well considered director in the 1980s, although he's since kind of come a cropper with a film called Captivity, which was kind of torture porn but pretentious at the same time. So, um, there's a kind of interesting cyclical link because um, Rowan Joffe was the screenwriter of um, The American, the recent George Clooney film, yep. which was directed by Anton Corbin, who also made Control, and Control starred Sam Riley, who now stars in Brighton Rock. So there's a kind of cyclical connection going on. Yep. Uh, based upon a novel by Graham Greene, it was previously adapted into a 1947 film starring Richard Attenborough. And we kind of think of Richard Attenborough now as this very sort of avuncular father figure, you know, like the owner of Jurassic Park or Santa yep. and Mir- Chris Kringle, sorry, and Miracle on 34th Street. But there was a point when he could still play these kind of baby-faced, dark characters. Um, have you seen a film called Ten Reddington Place? No. That's a very interesting film in which he plays a backstreet abortionist turned serial killer who buries the bodies of his women in the lining of his house. Don't say that on air. Eli Roth will make a sequel. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's, it is a very dark film, but there are many people who've written about that as an influence on Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins' performance as Hannibal Lecter. Mm. Um, very dark film and a good performance by John Hurt as well. So... The original f- film and the novel is set in kind of interwar Britain. This one uprooted to the mid-1960s, so you have a gangster called Pinky Brown, played by Sam Riley. Awesome name. Yeah. Doesn't sound very intimidating, <laughs> but it is. Believe me. He ca- so you have a guy who commits uh, murder of a newspaper salesman called Hale, the reason being that Hale was the guy who betrayed the boss of the gang whom he now 
whom he is now the head of. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one witness to the crime, is a young lady called Rose, who in this version is no, working as a waitress, but not in a cocktail bar. Uh, had to get that reference in. <laughs> and um, because she's the only witness to the crime, he thinks the best way to shut her up is to marry her, because they're both Catholics, they both have very kind of interesting ideas about guilt and sin, and, you know, whether they're going to be tortured all their lives, you know, for eternity rather than purgatory because of committing murder. Mm-hmm. And it's a very kind of interesting struggle between doing the right thing and being in love, or what she believes is love. Now, like I say, I have a very rocky relationship with um, Graham Greene's work. I mean, it's very, he's a very interesting novelist, but I don't think there's ever been a great film adaptation of any of his works. Um, Have you seen The Third Man? Uh, Yeah, years and years ago. What did you think of it? Um, Pass, you ask us to recall the the plot. I remember seeing it, I just remember... No, I can't. I, it's probably not good enough to have stuck with us. No, I so, mean it's it's often held up as one of the greatest you no know, films of the uh, British films or British film noirs, and I think it is massively overrated. Mm. Now all the stuff with Orson Welles in during you know, the big chase in the sewers and where he's doing the conversation on the Ferris wheel, which incidentally was improvised. That stuff is really interesting, but when he's not on screen, it's kind of well, it's just another ponderous thriller, and it's bit there's you no know, bits of it which rip off the of Thirty Nine Steps, and there's an actress in it called Anita Varley who is incredibly irritating. Just kind of moans on about Harry. He wouldn't do this. Harry wouldn't say, oh, shut up. Just go and get another man. There's plenty left in Vienna. So, the thing about this new version, I mean, there, there have been some reviews saying that it, it is bloodless and it doesn't have any kind of right to exist. There was actually, an, ironically, an interview with Rowan Joffe in Empire where basically saying that he thought the original was rather anodyne, which is frankly brave, considering that, you no, know, it's one of Richard Attenborough's scariest performances and it is bleak as sin. Mm. No pun intended, because obviously it's a film about sin. I think it's visually interesting. I think that Rowan Joffe has potential both as a screenwriter and, you no, know, he comes from a directorial family, so I dare say that there's something there. Um, whether it's better than the original is anybody's guess, but if you haven't read the original novel, this will probably do as good. Would it be harsh to say that from that, that cliff we discussed uh, in the trailer that maybe George Lucas wrote the romantic dialogue? Where the, it, there's a bit where the two characters goes, the man goes, I'm bad, you're good, we're meant for each other. And it's just like, oh. I, I don't think that's Luke. That's a well, bit harsh. <laughs> Lucas esque. <laughs> no, Put it this way there isn't any point at which the actress playing Rose stands on the cliff and says, You're breaking my heart <laughs> in a strange American accent. <laughs> So, yeah. it'd be good if it was, though. No. We'll put, we'll put that in the sequel. <laughs> Bite and Rock 2. <laughs> yeah. Um, another film uh, which we're going to go through now is The Fighter, which is the new Christian Bale one. Yeah, new film from David O. Russell, who is a, a really schizophrenic director, almost in more ways than one. On the one hand, you have um, a film of his he made called Three Kings with uh, George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, which is a film about the first Gulf War. It's a thriller about them finding gold, and that's quite interesting. But then you have his kind of quirky stuff like, well, he made a film called Spanking the Monkey, and uh, a film which isn't about what you think it is. Let's leave that. Yes. Skip past that. Yeah, and he also most recently made a film called I Heart Huckabees, which was one of the most unendurably pretentious piles of trash you've ever seen. It's the one where it's um, Lily Tomlin playing it and Dustin Hoffman playing existential detectives who go around investigating people's problems and Isabel Huppert turns up as someone who dunks people's heads in mud and it's just one of those films where you think 
Shut up and tell a proper story. Um, so anyway, he's now back with this the, called The Fighter, so Ma it's, which is a story of rivaling brothers. Um, Mark Warburg plays Irish Mickey Ward, who is a welterweight boxer being trained by his brother Dickie, uh, played by Christian Bale, who's been nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Dickie used to be a great boxer who's famous for knocking out Sugar Ray Leonard, but he's now a crack addict and you know, he's training Mickey as he gets a shot at the welterweight title. There are very good performances in this. I mean, I like Christian Bale very much, and he's been Oscar-nominated. Mark Wahlberg is very good in the sense that he's sort of the counterbalance to... He's very understated, where Bale is much more sort of showy. I mean, there's been a lot written, written about Bale's weight loss and so yes. forth. Yes, uh, he's, he's a yo-yo he's a dieter, I believe is the, is the, <laughs> the term that heat readers would use. <laughs> Quite possibly. But I think in general, however, the film is rather unremarkable and ultimately incidental. I mean, we have seen a lot of it before in the sense, you know, the boxer who's the underdog, well, that's all of the Rocky films, and the idea of boxing amid two warring brothers... Raging Bull, yes. and, you know, after Raging Bull, it's like, where do you go with a boxing film? The other thing is, I don't really trust Russell as a director, and I don't think the film is anything as clever or remarkable as, he, as it thinks it is. I mean, he does have a reputation for, I mean, when I said schizophrenic in more ways than one, not just in the sense that he makes quite good films and really bad films, but he has a reputation as someone who is, shall we say, rather abusive towards his cast. There was the story that he had a fist fight with George Clooney on the set of Three Kings and they don't speak to each other anymore and when Lily Tomlin uh, started discussing a scene with him he basically called her everything under the sun and locked himself in his office and kept calling her well shall we say it rhymes with hunt but begins with something else so yeah I think you know, if you're a boxing fan go and see The Fighter but it isn't it's unremarkable it's pathetic that he's been nominated for Best Director ahead of Christopher Nolan and it's fine but nothing more than fine this feels to me like if you've seen the trailer Kind of seen the film. Yeah, it runs through a lot of the. Oh, he's, he's, this is his one last shot. Blah blah. blah. It just kind of, it does everything it needs to do within the two two minutes thirty of a trailer. So, interesting. Must well, let's have to watch it and see what we think. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough response. Uh, shall we do Sanctum next? Yes. Um, I James believe it's called James Cameron's <laughs> Sanctum. Yeah, there, there is some confusion about whether it's Sanctum or James Cameron's Sanctum in the same way. Is it Prince of Darkness or John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness? Mm. Because there are some directors and producers who ca who have either copyrighted or unofficially the idea of putting the ability to put their name ahead of a film. I mean, certainly mm. if you... Let's get into the actual content of it. So it's a James Cameron produced rather than directed uh, diving thriller, which instantly... <laughs> Sorry, diving thriller. I just, I just, it just, look, it just sounds terrible. <laughs> Why, what is it about the words diving thriller? That you it's just like, oh, it's just, we just, I have a sort of film I watch and go, I'm praying for a shark. Have you seen The Abyss? No. James Cameron film about submarine gets stuck oh, so in the abyss and aliens are involved. He's kind of remade his own film. Well, yeah, but well, the thing is, he, ha he hasn't, but he's super right. So mm. let, let's get into that. It's basically, it's a diving thriller not laughing, apparently based on the true story of people who got trapped in underwater caves in Australia. Uh, story is, a bunch of people go to cave diving, get stuck, and bad stuff happens. And that's yeah. basically the plot. It is essentially a hodgepodge of other films. I mean, the two biggest things that owes debt to are, first of all, James Cameron's The Abyss, which is about a, you know, a submarine crew who go down to the bottom of the ocean, they get stuck or stranded and so forth, and uh, it's all about the relationship with them, and then it turns out, depending on which mm. version you read, that aliens might be involved. Um, you know, but not giving too much away. Sorry, I hit the microphone. The other thing that owes a big debt to is a film called The Descent, the Neil Marshall film about um, potholers. I think the original tagline of it was Chicks with Picks, in which, you know, you go, they go down... They they get stuck in these kind of really, um, you know, 
tight spaces in which they have to kind of um, perform all kind of complicated acrobatics, and then it turns out that these horrible monsters called griblies uh, lurking underground ready to eat them. And if you've seen Tremors, that kind of links back to, mm -hmm. you know, the, the man-eating worms. So this, it's a kind of hodgepodge of those. I mean, the descent cost a million, and whereas this costs 30 million Australian dollars, what that works out to in American dollars or sterling, I'm not quite sure. But it is essentially a rather pointless 3D humdrum thriller. I mean, if you want... Um, a 3D caving film. Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams in 3D is coming out in a couple of months. So by all means hang around for that because Herzog is a much more creative and intelligent director than Cameron. Certainly no post-Titanic Cameron at any rate. Yes, it's, uh, it's kind of um, the fact that they've had to mention it's James Cameron produced and have to sort of kind of shout about that kind of says there's not a lot else going for it as such. Yeah. I'm I mean, sure James Cameron has produced... I'm, what I'm, I have it in my head that I've watched... Uh, Rambo 2, and I'm sure James Cameron produced that. I think he but might they, have. But they didn't show him. about that. Ra James Cameron presents Rambo 2. Because Rambo, like, Rambo 2 was what, mid 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, 86, 87. Because he wouldn't have made aliens by that point, so there probably wasn't anything to shout about. Mm. I mean, the Terminator was great, but no, it, it had been quite low budget, mm. so. No. This, it, it looks like one of these ones you. There's a big, big gang of people, and you just say. He's not going to make it to the end. He's not going to make it to the end. She will. The little kids and dogs and will and that will. The usual. There are sort of diving stuff. dogs in this film. I must have missed that. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> would that have made it a lot more interesting? Um, yes. yes. Beethoven four. What would diving have made, in Australia? What would have made it more interesting is if once the diving they came across the decomposing corpse of Leonardo DiCaprio from Titanic, <laughs> and just to link back to James Cameron's other film, was that Ghost of the Abyss, the documentary he made about? Um, yeah. Uh, it would just be good if just it just went floating by and they went, ah. Because there is that bit in uh, Jaws 3, which is one of the big, which is one of the big 3D modes where the severed arm wanders into shot mm -hmm. for about two seconds and you go, oh, and then it's, oh, it's 3D, it's yeah. fine, it's not real. So yeah, Sanctum, it's, it's a money-making exercise essentially. I mean, the story of how it got made was basically the director, Alistair Grierson, wandered onto the Avatar set, had a meeting with James Cameron, and he said, yeah, I'll put my name on it and that's fine. Yeah, and, it's kind of like the basic yeah. one, look at our shiny new cameras. That's pretty much what Avatar was to me. Look at the new technology, and eventually it'll be it'll be used properly in a good film. Um, yeah. And uh, that's yeah, it's kind of just going look at the shiny toys. And of course, there's Avatar two and three coming because they're being shot back to back, and they're ah. going to be every bit as baggy and nonsensical <laughs> as the Matrix sequels. True. It, yeah. If he's if he made over a billion dollars with that, he's got even more free reign to do what he wants. Avatar two would probably be about eight hours long. <laughs> Oh, probably jobs. insist on showing all three together. <laughs> the longest trilogy in the world. Okay, so that's Sanctum, it's rubbish. Um, speaking of rubbish, Rabbit Hole. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> now, do you want to start with um, the conversation we had when we both saw the trailer? Which was, because we went to see the King's Speech on Tuesday and it was one of the three trailers that we saw. Yeah, it looks... It looks horrible. It just looks like uh, Nico Kidman and Aaron Eckhart, they've, they've lost their, their child, and it's them just sort of grieving, and it, I can't see how you... It's, in, it's not like a film where there would be any remote enjoyment out of it in the slightest. I mean, fairness, if you've been to that sort of thing, you might think, oh, I'll go and see, see if we can relate to the characters, but why would you use that as the cinema experience? Why would you have that as, as a sort of enjoyment? It just seems to me like Nicole Kidman's just kind of went... 
uh, Oscar, please. Um, I'll do something a bit serious, have an Oscar. Um, and I don't think it's been nominated or anything, has it? She's got a Best Actress nod. Has she? But she's going to lose out to Natalie Portman because that uh, that uh, category is pretty much. This doesn't this doesn't deserve any praise because it just looks. Yeah, it, the trailer weird. is <laughs> the trailer is two and a half minutes of people moaning. But yeah. no, we'll come on. So the British background. It's directed by John Cameron Mitchell, who's most famous for directing a strange film called Hedwig and the Angry Inch which is about a, it's either a transsexual or transgender German pop singer who goes uh, after a fan whom she, he or she alleges has stolen their material. And it's a very odd um, kind of you know, film, a bit like, um, there's a 1980s cult film called Liquid Sky, which is about um, homosexuality in the fashion industry, which is much more sort of outlandish and colourful. So the story is Nicole Kidman uh, and Aaron Eckhart. They're a couple who are grieving after the tragic death of their very young son, and over the course of the film you see their lives playing out as they go through the grief and um, try and come to terms with it. The problem is both of these actors are very much up and down. I mean, a lot of people think Mark and Nicole Kidman is kind of very just brittle and irritating. I mean, she has done a lot of bad stuff like, you know, Cold Mountain, Margot at the Wedding, Nine, although she's actually one of the best things in that film. But I like her for, for her kind of much more sort of playful work uh, like um, Moulin Rouge. There's a really good, probably the only great film Gus Van Sant has ever made called To Die For, in which she plays, uh, it's a black comedy in which she plays a weather girl who wants to be the most famous thing on ah, TV yeah, yeah. and she That's goes about by, you know, killing everyone. <laughs> and there's that famous scene at the end where she's um, skating on the frozen lake and under the frozen lake is buried the last body of her last known rival. <laughs> no, last body as opposed to any other body. Um, then, of course, you have Aaron Eckhart, who famously was Two-Face in the Dark Knight, but he's also done rubbish like Love Happens with Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. So, it is an actor's piece in the sense that, you know, it's, it's very much a film in which the director is saying, look, let's just let the human drama play out and I won't make any kind of hyper-stylized creative decisions. But it is just two people moaning all the time, intercut with, you know, quirky scenes with Diane Reese. I mean, it is a rather obtuse complaint to say, you know, that's a film about grief, why are people moaning so much? Because if you'd lost a young child, you would go through a large period of grief. We're not denying that. The problem is for the film to be dramatic and genuinely interesting, you need to kind of have something that happens that moves it on from that. Mm -hmm. And it can't just be about kind of, Aaron Eckhart wants to move on, Nicole Kidman doesn't, and we'll battle it out for two hours. I mean, the best films about grief kind of use it as a starting point to explore a deeper issue so you look at something like nicholas rogues don't look now which starts with the death of a very young girl but then he uses that as the kind of starting point to explore you know what is the role of fate and the supernatural in the everyday events that occur in human life and it's all about fate and predeterminism what was that film with uh with willem dafoe last year um is it antichrist Anti i was about to mention yeah that's it that's it's, it's a Bit of a polar opposite to this film. Yeah, but I mean that. But that's a film which again begins with the death of a child and then uses it to explore something deeper. I mean, Antichrist is a very sort of love-hate experience because Lars von Trier is a very untrustworthy filmmaker. I mean, he makes David O. Russell look like Orson Welles, but in terms of you know how reliable he is, mm. I mean that is a film which very much kind of takes the death of the child and uses it as a starting point to examine the nature of womanhood and misogyny. Whether you think it's misogynist or about misogyny, it is about something. Whereas this just, it, it doesn't have anything going for it. I mean, it is, that, it is part of that kind of school of filmmaking that started with Ordinary People, the Robert Redford film, in which it's a bit too smug and a bit too pompous and a bit too hermetically sealed for its own good. Mm. And, you know, I mean, it's probably better directed than some of Noah Baumbach's stuff, but that's not exactly high praise.
Right, we have you have ninety seconds to rattle through New York. I love you. Well, that's fine. Uh, it's a portmanteau project similar to a film called Paris Thème, where basically it's a group of different filmmakers assigned to a specific area in the five boroughs of New York, and they're asked to tell different short stories, some of which intersect, but all of them are about finding love in a loose sense. Uh, cast includes Natalie Portman, Hayden Christensen. Yes, they're together again. <laughs> although I don't think they actually share. Uh, screen time together, but you know, let's let's not tempt fate. Uh, Orlando Bloom is in it, Christina Ritchie and Andy Garcia. The directors include Natalie Portman herself, who apparently her bit is quite good, and Brett Ratner, who is the only other big name director involved in this project. Um, it's been on a shelf for two years. Any, everyone who goes to see it will find kind of interesting bits and pieces that stick, but like all portmanteau works, in the end it doesn't hold together as anything more than the sum of its parts, and unless you live in New York, it won't be particularly involving or memorable. True. I think, yeah, yeah. I, d I don't think it's one I would literally, if someone gave me the DVD, I'd probably go... Hayden Christensen, stay away. Yeah. You heard about his new film that he's made called, I think it's called Vanishing on 7th Street, which is total rubbish. Oh, yes, yes, I've seen the trailer for that one, it's luck, yeah. He needs, he, he's going to come to our script boot, boot camp, I think. Yes, we shall organise it now. <laughs> and he will also go to our acting boot camp as well, <laughs> which we'll run the week before. Shall we just get those four people, <laughs> put them in canoes and send them down a fictional river? Yes, we shall. Which leads us to, I'll just quickly round up before the 10 o'clock, uh, 11 o'clock even, next week, Deliverance, and we'll have a whole heap of new releases as well. Yeah, we've got lots to get through. Um, so yeah, cult film this week is Get Carter, if that's not your bag, and frankly it should be because it's a really interesting film. Mm -hmm. Out of the stuff in the top 10 going to the king's speech or black swan if or 127 hours or possibly hereafter so there's a lot to choose from this week of the new releases what would you say is the best um well it's probably bright and rock yeah. although it's not flawless by any means it's the most interesting yeah it's, it's the most ambitious and interesting i mean it, if certainly it's if you haven't read the original book then it's probably going to be better than if you are a fan of the 1947 version but uh, and if but uh, yeah that is probably the one i mean the fighter is fine but it's no quite bloated and you predictable what's gonna happen yeah <laughs> right well thank you very much daniel and we shall see you next week yeah look uh, forward to it and we'll get back into the music uh with a bit of smashing pumpkins Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.